Hi, I'm Eric, and this is Listen to Sleep, quiet stories and meditations to help you find a little peace at bedtime or anytime. I'm so filled with gratitude today. No, not because the road finally got plowed. (laughs) We're still snowed in for what looks like a few more days at least. These last three weeks up here on the mountain have shown me so much about who I am. The times when my mind built a cage where there was only the beauty of nature surrounding me. The way my imagination would wander to visions of life being different than it is. The resistance to what was actually happening in an attempt to look away from the feelings of discomfort. Yes, I've missed Joe terribly, and there is a lot of empty space in the refrigerator. I'd love nothing more than to get in the car and drive the two hours to hug the man I love most and get a few bags of groceries. But that's not what life is offering today. Today, life is offering lessons in yielding and letting go. It's offering snowy walks with Bodie and my neighbor Brent, who's also one of my oldest and dearest friends. It's offering evenings of getting together to share what fresh food we have and the last bottle of wine. Life is letting me know that I'm alive. And sometimes that feels good, and sometimes it doesn't. But it's all life. And these past few weeks have really brought that lesson home to me. And there's another part of me that knows that there are people suffering all over the world who would love nothing better than to spend a few weeks snowed in in a mountain cabin. And that same part says, just shut up and be happy. But I've realized that I don't need to shut up or to be happy. Sometimes are times for sharing and sometimes are times for shutting up. Sometimes are times for being happy and sometimes are not. More and more these days, authenticity is becoming my North Star, trusting that the deepest part of me that is most authentically me is the same as the part of you that is most authentically you. Everything else is just like the clouds passing by, but we are all the sky. And today, I feel so grateful to be the sky with you. Well, this is where I would normally tell you about the new Listen to Sleep Plus, but today I just don't have it in me. So you all get a break from that this week. If you want to help me out and get almost 100 extra episodes of the podcast, you can find a link to support it in the show notes. Speaking of, I answered an email from a supporter in Montana who was looking for some help with the new Listen to Sleep Plus, and that turned into the best conversation. 
She thanked me for the meditations and told me how much they had helped her let go of some of her identification with her thoughts, and that that had helped her sleep better. At the end of her email, she asked me if I would read something by Albert Payson Terhune. I had never heard of him, but I'm definitely going to read one of his longer books on Listen to Sleep Plus. And tonight, I'm going to read one of his short stories for you about a boy and his dog. You know, this is definitely my kind of story. Let's take a deep breath in and out. Letting go of the day, feeling the weight of gravity pulling you deep down into the mattress. Another deep breath in and out. Nothing to do, nowhere to go, no one to be. One more deep breath in with me. And out. If you get tired while I'm reading to you, that's okay. Just let yourself drift off. One minute longer. Wolf was a collie, red, gold, and white of coat, with a shape more like his long-ago wolf ancestors than like a domesticated dog's. It was from this ancestral throwback that he was named Wolf. He looked not at all like his great sire, Sunnybank Lad, nor like his dainty thoroughbred mother, Lady. Nor was he like them in any other way, except that he inherited old Lad's staunchly gallant spirit and loyalty, and his uncanny brain. No, in traits as well as in looks, he was more wolf than dog. He almost never barked, his snarl supplying all vocal needs. The mistress, or the master, or the boy, any of these three could romp with him, roll him over, tickle him, or subject him to all sorts of playful indignities and Wolf entered gleefully into the fun of the romp. But let any human, besides these three, lay a hand on his slender body, and a snarling plunge for the offender's throat was Wolf's invariable reply to the caress. It had been so since his puppyhood. He did not fly at accredited guests, nor, indeed, pay any heed to their presence, so long as they kept their hands off him. But to all of these, the boy was forced to say at the very outset of the visit, 
Pat, Lad, and Bruce all you want to, but please leave Wolf alone. He doesn't care for people. We've taught him to stand for a pat on the head from guests, but don't touch his body. Then, to prove his own immunity, the boy would proceed to tumble Wolf about, to the delight of both of them. In romping with humans whom they love, most dogs will bite more or less gently, or pretend to bite as a part of the game. Wolf never did this. In his wildest and roughest romps with the boy or the boy's parents, Wolf did not so much as open his mighty jaws. Perhaps because he dared not trust himself to bite gently. Perhaps because he realized that a bite is not a joke, but an effort to kill. There had been only one exception to Wolf's hatred for mauling at a stranger's hands. A man came to the place on a business call, bringing along a chubby two-year-old daughter. The master warned the baby that she must not go near Wolf, although she might pet any of the other collies. Then he became so much interested in the business talk that he and his guest forgot all about the child. Ten minutes later, the master chanced to shift his gaze to the far end of the room, and he broke off with a gasp in the very middle of a sentence. The baby was seated astride Wolf's back, her tiny heels digging into the dog's sensitive ribs, and each of her chubby fists gripping one of his ears. Wolf was lying there with an idiotically happy grin on his face and wagging his tail in ecstasy. No one knew why he had submitted to the baby's tugging hands, except because she was a baby and because the gallant heart of the dog had gone out to her helplessness. Wolf was the official watchdog of the place, and his name carried dread to the loafers and tramps in the region. Also, he was the boy's own special dog. He had been born on the boy's tenth birthday, five years before this story of ours begins. And ever since then, the two had been inseparable chums. One sloppy afternoon in late winter, Wolf and the boy were sprawled side by side on the fur rug in front of the library fire. The mistress and master had gone to town for the day. The house was lonely, and the two chums were left to entertain each other. The boy was reading a magazine. The dog beside him was blinking in drowsy comfort at the fire. Presently, finishing the story he had been reading, the boy looked across at the sleepy dog. Wolf, 
he said. Here's a story about a dog. I think he must have been something like you. Maybe he was your great-great-great-great-grandfather? He lived an awfully long time ago, in Pompeii. Ever hear of Pompeii? Now, the boy was 15 years old, and he had too much sense to imagine that Wolf could possibly understand the story he was about to tell him. But long since, he had fallen into a way of talking to his dog sometimes as if to another human. It was fun for him to note the almost pathetic eagerness wherewith Wolf listened and tried to grasp the meaning of what he was saying. Again and again, at sound of some familiar word or voice inflection, the collie would pick up his ears or wag his tail, as if in the joyous hope that he had, at last, found a clue to his owner's meaning. You see, went on the boy, this dog lived in Pompeii, as I told you. You've never been there, Wolf. Wolf was looking up at the boy in wistful excitement, seeking vainly to guess what was expected of him. And, continued the boy, the kid who owned him seems to have had a regular knack for getting into trouble all the time and his dog was always on hand to get him out of it. It's a true story, the magazine says. The kid's father was so grateful to the dog that he bought him a solid silver collar. Solid silver. Get that, Wolfie? Wolf did not get it, but he wagged his tail hopefully his eyes alight with bewildered interest. And, said the boy, what do you suppose was engraved on the collar? Well, I'll tell you. This dog has thrice saved his little master from death, once by fire, once by flood, and once at the hands of robbers. How's that for a record, Wolf? For one dog, too. At the words wolf and dog, the collie's tail smote the floor in glad comprehension. Then he edged closer to the boy as the narrator's voice presently took on a sadder tone. But at last, resumed the boy, there came a time when the dog couldn't save the kid. Mount Vesuvius erupted. All the sky was pitch dark, as black as midnight, and Pompeii was buried under lava and ashes. The dog could easily have gotten away by himself. Dogs can see in the dark, can't they, wolf? but he couldn't get the kid away, and he wouldn't go without him. 
You wouldn't have gone without me either, would you, wolf? Pretty nearly 2,000 years later, some people dug through the lava that covered Pompeii. What do you suppose they found? Of course, they found a whole lot of things. One of them was that dog. Silver collar and inscription and all. He was lying at the feet of a child. The child he couldn't save. He was one grand dog. Hey, Wolf? The continued strain of trying to understand began to get on the collie's high-strung nerves. He rose to his feet, quivering, and sought to lick the boy's face, thrusting one upraised white forepaw at him in appeal for a handshake. The boy slammed shut the magazine. It's slow in the house here with nothing to do, he said to his chum. I'm going up to the lake with my gun to see if any wild ducks have landed in the marshes yet. It's almost time for them. Want to come along? The last sentence Wolf understood perfectly. On the instant, he was dancing with excitement at the prospect of a walk. Being a collie, he was of no earthly help in a hunting trip. But on such tramps as everywhere else, he was the boy's inseparable companion. Out over the slushy snow, the two started. The boy with his light, single-barreled shotgun slung over one shoulder, the dog trotting close at his heels. The March thaw was changing to a sharp freeze. The deep and soggy snow was crusted over, just thick enough to make walking a genuine difficulty for both dog and boy. The place was a promontory that ran out into the lake, on the opposite bank from the mile-distant village. Behind, across the high road, lay the winter-choked forest. At the lake's northerly end, two miles beyond the place, were the reedy marshes where, a month hence, wild duck would congregate. Thither, with wolf, the boy plowed his way through the biting cold. The going was heavy and heavier. A quarter mile below the marshes, the boy struck out across the upper corner of the lake. Here, the ice was rotten at the top, where the thaw had nibbled at it. But beneath it was still a full eight inches thick, easily strong enough to bear the boy's weight. Along the gray ice field, the two plodded. The skim of water, which the thaw had spread an inch thick over the ice, had frozen in the day's cold spell. It 
crackled like broken glass as the chums walked over it. The boy had on big hunting boots. So apart from the extra effort, the glass-like ice did not bother him. To Wolf, it gave acute pain. The sharp particles were forever getting between the callous black pads of his feet, pricking and cutting him acutely. Little smears of blood began to mark the dog's course, but it never occurred to Wolf to turn back or to betray by any sign that he was suffering. It was all part of a day's work, a cheap price to pay for the joy of tramping with his adored young master. Then, forty yards or so on the hither side of the marshes, Wolf beheld a right amazing phenomenon. The boy had been walking directly in front of him, gun over shoulder. With no warning at all, the youthful hunter fell, feet foremost, out of sight, through the ice. The light shell of new frozen water that covered the lake's thicker ice also masked an air hole nearly three feet wide. Into this, as he strode carelessly along, the boy had stepped. Straight down he had gone, with all the force of his hundred and twenty pounds and with all the impetus of his forward stride. Instinctively, he threw out his hands to restore his balance. The only effect of this was to send the gun flying ten feet away. Down went the boy through less than three feet of water, for the bottom of the lake at this point had started to slope upward toward the marshes, and through nearly two feet more of sticky marsh mud that underlay the lake bed. His outflung hands struck against the ice on the edges of the air hole and clung there. Sputtering and gurgling, the boy brought his head above the surface and tried to raise himself by his hands, high enough to wriggle out upon the surface of the ice. Ordinarily, this would have been simple enough for so strong a lad. But the glue-like mud had imprisoned his feet and the lower part of his legs and held them powerless. Try as he would, the boy could not wrench himself free of the slough. The water, as he stood upright, was on a level with his mouth. The air hole was too wide for him at such a depth to get a good purchase on its edges and lift himself bodily to safety. Gaining such a finger hold as he could, he heaved with all his might, throwing every muscle of his body into the struggle. One leg was pulled almost free of the mud, but the other 
was driven deeper into it. And as the boy's fingers slipped from the smoothly wet ice edge, the attempt to restore his balance drove the free leg back, knee-deep, into the mire. Ten minutes of this hopeless fighting left the boy panting and tired out. The icy water was numbing his nerves and chilling his blood into torpidity. His hands were without sense of feeling, as far up as the wrists. Even if he could have shaken free his legs from the mud, now he had not enough strength left to crawl out of the hole. He ceased his uselessly frantic battle and stood dazed. Then he came sharply to himself. For as he stood, the water crept upward from his lips to his nostrils. He knew why the water seemed to be rising. It was not rising. It was he who was sinking. As soon as he stopped moving, the mud began very slowly, but very steadily, to suck him downward. This was not a quicksand, but it was a deep mud bed, and only by constant motion could he avoid sinking farther and farther down into it. He had less than two inches to spare, at best, before the water should fill his nostrils. Less than two inches of life, even if he could keep the water down to the level of his lips. There was a moment of utter panic. Then the boy's brain cleared. His only hope was to keep on fighting to rest when he must for a moment or so, and then to renew his numbed grip on the ice edge and try to pull his feet a few inches higher out of the mud. He must do this as long as his chilled body could be scourged into obeying his will. He struggled again, but with virtually no result in raising himself. A second struggle, however, brought him chin high above the water. He remembered confusedly that some of these earlier struggles had scarce budged him, while others had gained him two or three inches. Vaguely, he wondered why. Then, turning his head, he realized. Wolf, as he turned, was just loosing his hold on the wide collar of the boy's mackinaw. His cut forepaws were still braced against a flaw of ragged ice at the air hole's edge, and all his tawny body was tense. His body was dripping wet, too. The boy noted that, and he realized that the repeated effort to draw his master to safety must have resulted, at least once, in pulling the dog down into the water 
with the floundering boy. Once more, Wolfie, once more, chattered the boy through teeth that clicked together like castanets. The dog darted forward, caught his grip afresh on the edge of the boy's collar, and tugged with all his fierce strength, growling and whining ferociously the while. The boy seconded the collie's tuggings by a supreme struggle that lifted him higher than before. He was able to get one arm and shoulder clear. His numb fingers closed about an upthrust tree limb which had been washed downstream in the autumn freshets and had been frozen into the lake ice. With this new purchase, and aided by the dog, the boy tried to drag himself out of the hole. But the chill of the water had done its work. He had not the strength to move farther. The mud still sucked at his calves and ankles. The big hunting boots were full of water that seemed to weigh a ton. He lay there, gasping and chattering. Then, through the gathering twilight, his eyes fell on the gun, lying ten feet away. Wolf, he ordered, nodding towards the weapon. Get it, get it. Not in vain had the boy talked to Wolf for years as if the dog were human. At the words and the nod, the collie trotted over to the gun, lifted it by the stock, and hauled it awkwardly along over the bumpy ice to his master, where he laid it down at the edge of the air hole. The dog's eyes were cloudy with trouble, and he shivered and whined as with ague. The water on his thick coat was freezing to a mass of ice, but it was from anxiety that he shivered and not from cold. Still keeping his numb grasp on the tree branch, the boy balanced himself as best he could and thrust two fingers of his free hand into his mouth to warm them into sensation again. When this was done, he reached out to where the gun lay and pulled its trigger. The shot boomed deafeningly through the twilight winter silences. The recoil sent the weapon sliding sharply back along the ice, spraining the boy's trigger finger and cutting it to the bone. That's all I can do, said the boy to himself. If anyone hears it, well and good. I can't get out another cartridge. I couldn't put it into the breech if I had it. My hands are too numb. For several endless minutes, he clung there, listening. But this was a desolate part of the lake, far from any road and the season was too early for other hunters to be abroad. 
the bitter cold, in any case, tended to make sane folk hug the fireside rather than to venture so far into the open. Nor was the single report of a gun uncommon enough to call for an investigation in such weather. All this, the boy told himself, as the minutes dragged by. Then he looked again at Wolf. The dog, head on one side, still stood protectingly above him. The dog was cold and in pain, but being a dog, it did not occur to him to trot off home to the comfort of the library fire and leave his master to fend for himself. Presently, with a little sigh, Wolf lay down on the ice, his nose across the boy's arm. Even if he lacked strength to save his beloved master, he could stay and share the boy's sufferings. But the boy himself thought otherwise. He was not at all minded to freeze to death, nor was he willing to let Wolf imitate the dog of Pompeii by dying helplessly at his master's side. Controlling for an instant the chattering of his teeth, he called, Wolf! The dog was on his feet at the word, alert, eager. Wolf, repeated the boy, go, hear me, go. He pointed homeward. Wolf stared at him, hesitant. Again, the boy called in vehement command, Go. The collie lifted his head to the twilight sky with a wolf howl, hideous in its grief and appeal, a howl as wild and discordant as that of any of his ancestors. Then, stooping first to lick the numb hand that clung to the branch, Wolf turned and fled. Across the cruelly sharp film of ice he tore, at top speed, head down, whirling through the deepening dust like a flash of tawny light. Wolf understood what was wanted of him. Wolf always understood. The pain in his feet was as nothing. The stiffness of his numbed body was forgotten in the urgency for speed. The boy looked drearily after the swift vanishing figure which the dusk was swallowing. He knew the dog would try to bring help as has many another and lesser dog in times of need. Whether or not that help could arrive in time, more at all, was a point on which the boy would not let himself dwell. Into his benumbed brain crept the memory of an old Norse proverb he had read in school. Heroism consists in hanging on one minute longer. Unconsciously, he tightened his feeble hold on the tree branch 
and braced himself. From the marshes to the place was a full two miles. Despite the deep and sticky snow, Wolf covered the distance in less than nine minutes. He paused in front of the gate lodge at the highway entrance to the drive. But the superintendent and his wife had gone to Patterson shopping that afternoon. Down the drive to the house he dashed. The maids had taken advantage of their employer's day in New York to walk across the lake to the village to a motion picture show. Wise men claim that dogs have not the power to think or to reason things out in a logical way. So perhaps it was mere chance that next sent Wolf's flying feet across the lake to the village. Perhaps it was chance, and not the knowledge, that where there is a village, there are people. Again and again, in the car, he had sat upon the front seat alongside the mistress when she drove to the station to meet guests. There were always people at the station. And to the station, Wolf now raced. The usual group of platform idlers had been dispersed by the cold. A solitary baggage man was hauling a trunk and some boxes out of the express coupe onto the platform to be put aboard the five o'clock train from New York. As the baggage man passed under the clump of station lights, he came to a sudden halt for out of the darkness dashed a dog. Full tilt, the animal rushed up to him and seized him by the skirt of the overcoat. The man cried out in scared surprise. He dropped the box he was carrying and struck at the dog to ward off the seemingly murderous attack. He recognized Wolf, and he knew the collie's repute. But Wolf was not attacking. Holding tight to the coat skirt, he backed away, trying to draw the man with him, and all the while whimpering aloud like a nervous puppy. A kick from the heavy-shod boot broke the dog's hold on the coat skirt, even as the second yell from the man brought four or five other people running out from the station waiting room. One of these, the telegraph operator, took in the scene at a single glance. With great presence of mind, he bawled loudly, Mad dog! This, as Wolf, reeling from the kick, sought to gain another grip on the coat skirt. A second kick, sent him rolling over and over on the tracks, while other voices took up the panic cry of mad dog. Now, a mad dog is supposed to be a dog afflicted by rabies. One in 10,000 times, at the very most, a mad dog hue and cry is justified. Certainly not oftener. 
a harmless and friendly dog loses his master on the street. He runs about, confused and frightened, looking for the owner he has lost. A boy throws a stone at him. Other boys chase him. His tongue hangs out, and his eyes glaze with terror. Then some fool bellows, mad dog. And the cruel chase is on, a chase that ends in the pitiful victim's death. Yes, in every crowd, there is a voice ready to raise that asinine and murderously cruel shout. So it was with the men who witnessed Wolf's frenzied effort to take aid to the imperiled boy. Voice after voice repeated the cry. Men groped along the platform edge for stones to throw. The village policeman ran puffingly upon the scene, drawing his revolver. Finding it useless to make a further attempt to drag the baggage man to the rescue, Wolf leaped back, facing the ever larger group. Back went his head, again with that hideous wolf howl. Then he galloped away a few yards, trotted back, howled once more, and again galloped lakeward. All of which only confirmed the panicky crowd in the belief that they were threatened by a mad dog. A shower of stones hurtled about Wolf as he came back a third time to lure these dull humans into following him. One rock smote the collie's shoulder glancingly. A shot from the policeman's revolver fanned the fur of his ruff as it whizzed past. Knowing that he faced death, he nevertheless stood his ground not troubling to dodge the stones, but continuing to run lakeward and then trot back, whining with excitement. A second pistol shot flew wide. From all directions, people were running towards the station. A man darted into the house next door and emerged carrying a shotgun. This he steadied on the veranda rail not forty feet away from the leaping dog and made ready to fire. It was then the train from New York came in, and momentarily the sport of mad dog killing was abandoned while the crowd scattered to each side of the track. From a front car of the train, the mistress and the master emerged into a bedlam of noise and confusion. Best hide in the station, ma'am, shouted the telegraph operator at the sight of the mistress. There is a mad dog loose out here. He's chasing folks around and... Mad dog, repeated the mistress in high contempt. If you knew anything about dogs, you'd know Mad ones never chase folks around any more than diphtheria patients do. A flash of tawny light beneath the station lamp. 
a scurrying of frightened idlers, a final wasted shot from the policeman's pistol, as Wolf dived headlong through the frightened crowd towards the voice he heard and recognized. Up to the mistress and the master galloped Wolf. He was bleeding. His eyes were bloodshot. His fur was rumpled. He seized the astounded master's gloved hand lightly between his teeth and sought to pull him across the tracks and towards the lake. The master knew dogs. Especially, he knew Wolf. And without a word, he suffered himself to be led. The mistress and one or two inquisitive men followed. Presently, Wolf loosed his hold on the master's hand and ran on ahead, darting back every few moments to make certain he was following. Heroism consists in hanging on one minute longer. The boy was whispering deliriously to himself, for the hundredth time, as Wolf pattered up to him in triumph across the ice with the human rescuers a scant ten yards behind. Good night.